This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify, the global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. This episode is brought to you by La Quinta by Wyndham. Your work can take you all over the place, like Texas. You've never been, but it's going to be great because you're staying at La Quinta by Wyndham. Their free bright side breakfast will give you energy for the day ahead. And after, you can unwind using their free high-speed Wi-Fi. Tonight, La Quinta. Tomorrow, you shine. Book your stay today at LQ.com. At Evernorth Health Services, we believe costs shouldn't get in the way of life-changing care. And we're doing everything in our power to make it possible. Behavioral health solutions that also keep your projections at their best? It's possible. Pharmacy benefits that benefit your bottom line? It's possible. Complex specialty care that cares about your ROI? It's possible. Because we're already doing it. All while saving businesses billions. That's wonder made possible. Learn more at evernorth.com wonder. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor-in-chief of the New Books Network, and I'd like to tell you about another terrific podcast called Historically Thinking. It's hosted by Al Zambone, a historian, and every week Al talks to historians about how they do their work and about their books and about history in general. This is a wonderful podcast, and it's one of our favorites at the New Books Network, and I really encourage you to subscribe to Historically Thinking. You can go to historicallythinking.org and learn all about it. It's on Apple Podcasts, and you can subscribe there. And we'd like to give you a little taste of Historically Thinking, so we're going to republish some of Al's terrific episodes, such as the one that follows. I hope you enjoy it. Welcome to Historically Thinking, a podcast that's not only about the past and all its complexity, but also about how historians write history and how everyone can think about it. For more information about this or any episode, go to historicallythinking.org, where you can also sign up for our twice-a-month newsletter. Hello. My underlying goal, writes guest Tom Misa, has been to display the variety of technologies to describe how they changed across time and to understand how they interacted with diverse societies and cultures. There's no simple definition of technology that adequately conveys the variety of its forms or sufficiently emphasizes the social and cultural interactions and consequences that I believe are essential to understand. The key point is that technologies are consequential for social and political futures. There is not one path forward. These words come from the conclusion of Mises' Leonardo to the Internet, Technology and Culture from the Renaissance to the Present, now being published in a third edition by Johns Hopkins University Press as one of the structural pillars of the Johns Hopkins series in the history of technology. Tom Misa recently retired as professor of the history of technology at the University of Minnesota, where he directed the Charles Babbage Center of the History of Computing, taught courses in the Program for the History of Science, Technology, and Medicine, and was a faculty member in the Department of Electrical and Computer Engineering, so we will blame him for any computer faults that occur over the next hour. Tom Misa, welcome to Historically Thinking. Al, thanks. I'm pleased to join you. So um, you write in the preface that all this began with questions about Leonardo da Vinci. Now, I have a a prejudice, I think I picked this up from Jacques Barzun, that Leonardo da Vinci was not really a Renaissance man. 
um, uh, that like someone like Alberti is a real Renaissance man. But let's leave that to 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 one side for the moment. Um, what were the questions you had about Leonardo, and how did they lead to you to this chapter on technology, court technology? Well, Leonardo da Vinci is one of the great enigmas, uh, both a hero and maybe a tragic figure in Western history. And when I was interested in Leonardo, I knew that he was some kind of a technical figure. Bertrand Gilles had written on engineers of the Renaissance, but Typically, Leonardo was written up kind of like a painter. You know, there's the Last Supper, there's the Mona Lisa. And then there was another tradition of writing about Leonardo as kind of a universal genius. He invented everything, automobiles, helicopters, profit of automation. And so I needed to try to figure out like what part of this was hyperbole and crazy stuff and what was, you know, sort of reasonably sound. So I went in and tried to look at Leonardo and his activities. And it happened that there was a fabulous, fabulous uh, museum exhibit at the in Montreal that, that dealt with Leonardo as an engineer and as an architect. And the exhibit made a very forceful point that Leonardo's career wasn't as a painter or anatomist or theoretician, but really as an engineer. He worked for a series of courts in Renaissance Italy roughly 1450 to 1600 or thereabouts. And that's how to understand his career. And the book was beautiful. It was huge, oversized, and had these beautiful, beautiful drawings of Leonardo's technical drawings. And that was what really drew me in and allowed me to see Leonardo, not so much as the way he's remembered in this fine arts or universal genius, but actually as an engineer and architect. And his connection to the court system is absolutely fundamental for trying to understand uh, his career. So I got interested in Renaissance courts and then found people like Alberti and many others, fellow engineers, as well as early printing, all connected very closely to the concerns and to the structure and to the patronage of the Italian court. So that's how that chapter kind of got around and and formed. There's a... um... There's a, a legendary, probably apocryphal uh, Hollywood talent agent report on Fred Astaire sings, dances a little. Uh, but in Leonardo, we could say, you know, engineer, paint some. Because in, that does seem to be the, the direction of his energies and efforts really do go into engineering that the court is interested in and some painting. Well, every once in a while, the courts could uh, tried to get him to do some painting, but I think Leonardo, like a number of technologists, wasn't really very disciplined. He didn't have a set schedule. Uh, there's a great line, uh, he would go and work for 15 minutes on the last supper and then rush back to one of his technological projects. But his technology projects also are a clue to the character of technology, character of technology and culture uh, during the Renaissance because this wasn't about industrial technology or improving technology for the woolen industry that was big. It was really about the technologies that the court system wanted for first and foremost, uh, military purpose. They were interested in building cities. They were interested in building big palaces. They had a a great craving for technology-based entertainment. That's where this automobile comes from. It always bothered me. Well, is, is 
Leonardo and early Henry Ford or something. No, 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 not at all. It was a stage prop, more likely than not. And somebody's worked it out. There's little springs and the thing got wound up. And it was moving on the stage of one of these cultural displays that Leonardo provided technology for. So that's one instance of a automated machine, profit of automation. It's a self-acting machine, self-driving maybe, even if you wanted to, to make a stretch yeah. of that. But that's directed <laughs> directly to the Renaissance and the interest in courts and court display and trying to make these grand occasions literally have a wow and sizzle factor. And technology was a part of that. And Leonardo provided exactly that wow and sizzle technology. So you, the whole book is based on this idea that technologies ebb and flow and you divide things into, and I know you're not going to like insist on this, but there are periods in which certain sort of, um, there's a streams of technology that sort of, or I, they kind of um, imagine a big current and different currents rise to the top. So in a way, there's always have been technologies for wow and sizzle. We go from, it could be Leonardo to Walt Disney. You know, Disney has been a major technological innovator in terms of wow and yep. sizzle, but they were doing this at the time when another current, and we'll get to that in the say 50s and 60s, was sort of had rolled to the top and that sort of occupied the sort of surface of this sort of three-dimensional stream. Is that sort of what you're what you're driving at here in, in the book by these divisions? Well, the errors that are fundamental structuring elements are a little bit ideal types. There are different types of technologies in each one of the eras, but I'm using those to kind of organize a impossibly diverse amount of material to try to get at the fundamental point that technology itself is not an agent so much of homogeneity. We're not going to one place. Your introduction says there's no one path forward. I just don't believe the singularity or, or anything else. We think sometimes that technology was was supposed to lead to the Industrial Revolution. And then from there, it's supposed to lead to who knows what. But I think the important thing to understand with technology historically and today is that it opens up a variety of very important choices and different consequential paths. So the Renaissance court-based technology was one path that because Leonardo and Alberti and Francesco and many other engineers got connected to the support and patronage, money, careers, a supportive environment that developed technology along a certain path during the Renaissance. But in other eras, the focus of technology changed and was consequential for politics, society, culture, and the economy. And so it's not just ebbing and flowing like a river running, but there are intentional points where you can see a shift in the character of technology. The Dutch during the 17th century had a capitalistic technology. It was not court-based. It was not aristocratic-based. It was capitalistic, but it was not industrial. So the idea of why, why the Dutch didn't have an industrial revolution is really not the right question. It, the question, I think, is how did the Dutch for, again, 100 years or so, elaborate a capitalistic, profit-driven set of technologies, including mills, including their own uh, specialized ship designs. They also were involved with military technology to free themselves from the Spanish that had claimed territory from them. The Dutch Republic is a military 
achievement. That character of technology is quite different. And similarly, the Industrial Revolution that occurs, we think sort of canonically in Britain, but it, industrialization is occurring in many other countries in Europe and uh, around the world. But the character of industrial technology is itself different. Now, the point is not to insist on the different eras as like things, entities, reified, you know, kind of containers, but to point mm -hmm. to the character of different technologies at different times. We face the same thing today. We think maybe that technology is leading to some singularity or some single point or some now it's the metaverse or something like that. But I just don't believe that. And I think that's actually that traps us into thinking that there's only one path forward. That's profoundly uh, unhelpful and inaccurate view. So each of these errors in some way is trying to make the argument that technology in the past has been put to many different uses. And the different errors then are ways of thinking about and kind of collecting our thinking because I think we face the same thing today. We're not going in the same direction. When I started working on this book in the 90s, globalization looked one way. It looks different now. It, globalization, I think, has changed. Mm -hmm. But the point is that there are technologies that sort of send society as a whole. Now, that's impossible because, of course, we have lots of different things going on. But you could say it's kind of a level or a layer of society down certain paths. And those are consequential for our life, for how we work where we work, mm -hmm. how we live, what our politics, society, and culture are like. So that's where the ebbing and flowing, maybe that's not the right metaphor, but I do want to zoom in on the notion of eras as a way of focusing on certain characters of technology that in the past have been different, and we face the same set of options for today and the future. So I, I think I said in the notes to you when I sent this, that, that this reading your book was brought me all the way back to like the late 80s and reading for uh, my old professor, Bill Leslie. Uh, I think he assigned us Otto Meyer's badly named Authority, Liberty, and Automatic Machinery in Early Modern Europe, which went off in my head like a thermonuclear weapon. And there was, because Meyer, uh, by looking at various machineries, is making a claim for, as he says, the forceful evidence of the interdependence of the socio-intellectual with the technological activities of a culture. And so what I got out of that was that culture was not something that we kind of ginned up and then like, it like affects us from like the outside, as it were. But what you're also describing in like court technology or commercial technology of the Dutch is that the technology that's being created is something that fits in with their socio and intellectual um, inclinations and with their um, with their directions. The Dutch aren't going to be interested in court technology because that's not a preoccupation of their society or their intellectual culture. Is that no? It's a, it's, a, it's a profoundly important point that Otto Meyer, I think, nails. He doesn't. I think it's his is a kind of a you know a b case. Uh, for different types of societies coming out of feedback traditions or you might say control conditions. But I think the insight is a mm -hmm. fundamental one that technologies don't come from the outside and culture doesn't come from the outside. Look, Leonardo in creating this you know, automobile was creating technology and creating culture at the same moment, at the, uh, at the same time. You know, it's funny, Bill Leslie has a very important role in the structure of this book, it's not in the version, the second ver second edition, I think that you got a hold of, but the third edition, I actually make a, 
Well, it's really kind of a thank you to, to Bill Leslie. Literally, I was walking across the street uh, in Chicago and a line from his book, um, Cold War and American Science, uh, popped into my head. I, I was reading that. I'd been interested in the military for a long time. I was an undergrad at MIT and the place is just suffused with military technologies and military projects and military R&D, military funding. And as an undergrad, this was like very strange. But so I, I came to Chicago with that in mind. I'd been interested in Leonardo and the Renaissance. And of course, classic theme is the Industrial Revolution. But Bill said uh, in, uh, in the preface to his book, he said, just as the Victorian engineers were given focus by the problems of empire, so too did the scientists and engineers during the Cold War have their technological horizons, their funding, their problems. What is a fundable problem? What is a doable problem shaped by the massive presence of the military? And at that moment, walking across the street, I thought, well, wait a second. That's one, two, three, four, I have four. And I thought, well, there could be a book in that. And I hadn't quite, I mean, Daniel Hedrick was writing about the tools of empire. And I thought, well, oh, wait a second, the tools of empire, that would fill in that other part from Bill Leslie. And, you know, Leslie's book is full of MIT and Stanford and the profound influence of the military industrial complex. And I've been interested in that. Um, uh, already. So that's actually the genesis in a way of the structure of this book and the way that it moves. Now, I happen to be going to the Netherlands. I had a bunch of Dutch friends. The Dutch friends were uniquely interested in maritime culture. And so that kind of you know organized a different approach to thinking about industrial technologies, not merely being um, you know something that we connect with the British Industrial Revolution, but with an earlier form of capitalism you know, profit driven, but mm -hmm. not um, industrial. So that's where the sort of the structure of the whole with now, I guess, 10 substantive chapters plus the 11th chapter now in the third edition as a kind of analytical conclusion. That's where that came from. So thanks to Bill Leslie. Where do we draw the line between um, technologies? I mean, you, you do you, would you, I think in your chapter on, on commercial, the commercial technology, you, would you classify then uh, commodities trading and futures markets as a kind of technology? Or is that a kind of, I mean, are high schools a technology? I thought about a lot about high schools lately. And I've been thinking that high school is much more important uh, the, the, is for creating the teenager than the car, which you often hear te uh, technological enthusiasts talk about the car and independence, blah, blah. But it seems to me that to actually have a youth culture, you have to like segregate the youth. Uh, and the high school did that in a unique way. So is a high, is a high school or a commodities market a, a technology uh, rather than like things that we like machines? Well, for a long time, people thought technology was about artifacts, you know, like Thomas Edison yeah. invents the light bulb and therefore we have the second industrial revolution. Well, that's just way too simple. That's one of the reasons we've had uh -huh. models of technology that are just massively too simple. Tom Hughes was my advisor in graduate school, and his idea was that technology should be examined as systems. So what Edison invented was not a light bulb, but a system of making electricity, generating electricity, moving it around, and then having that turn out to be light bulbs and later on um, other things uh, as well. So if you do systems and you think, well, how are systems embedded in the culture, then institutions like high schools, particularly vocational high schools, are absolutely critical to having 
young people in the US at least, the other countries it gets organized differently, be trained in the kind of mechanical skills necessary for repairing tractors or repairing automobiles or repairing machinery. So I wouldn't say that technologies are a high school, but they can be embedded in other, like, sorry, high schools aren't purely technologies, but they can be embedded in other systems of technology. So it's useful to think of them as a component, perhaps, of technological systems. Absolutely. Bicycles, too, by the way. Bicycles were the first technology that that, um, young people used to get out from the prying eyes of parents. Yes, absolutely. And very important to the politics of the 18, political culture of the 1890s and to the Wright brothers, who are another type of systems people. Yep. I actually, I didn't learn this from Tom Hughes. I learned this from my dad, who was a chemical engineer and who said to me, I remember him saying at a very early age, there's no such thing as just a light bulb. You have to invent a power plant to go with a light bulb. Otherwise, what's the yep. use of a light bulb? Right. Um, there's, you can't just, you can't just invent this kind of Langley's problem. He didn't invent the wind tunnel. Uh, the Wright brothers saw the airplane as a system in the way that no one else did at the time. Um, they were, everyone's been a systems engineer long before people created systems engineering. And I think if you look at systems, those are the technologies that at least interest me. And I take a broad and kind of expansive view of systems. Hughes' version of systems was large integrated electric light and power systems, automobile production and use system, other types of systems, nuclear energy. But in fact, now we have systems, but they're loosely organized. They're not Hughesian systems. The internet's a system. It's nothing more than this. It's 100,000 units, uh, 100,000 autonomous systems wired together. But that can be usefully thought about as a system of technologies. But the internet, too, is embedded in national cultures. It's embedded in regulatory uh, structures. And if you look at the newspaper the last week or so, you have Russia and China forming a kind of block around a very different conception of the internet. So how these systems develop is not inherent or intrinsic to the system itself, but it's shaped by politics and shaped by the forces that uh, are behind and support and shape the characteristics of these errors and the systems that are a part of them. And to use even, I think this works, is a more trivial example, perhaps, but I think actually a very important example. I just had a conversation um, that will drop before this one about postcards. Um, And postcards seem to me to require a variety of things, a system. You have to have a postal system that's reached a certain sophistication. You have to have multicolor printing. You have to have, uh, there's a variety, you have to have cheap paper. You have to have et cetera, all various things together. You have to have a certain amount of literacy in a society. If you think of that, that's a sort of a system that, yep. that enables a, a, very, a, net, a network, which at the time was a hell of a lot like text messaging or Instagram. Yeah, short little messages that aren't long, long, long epistles. Um, it's also quite public. Text messages are quite public. Uh, public figures sometimes say things that they're not supposed to. You would never put that on the back of a postcard. But so it's it's useful yeah. in a way to think about postcards and the things, the behaviors that are smart with postcards. And people should be thinking about that when they're doing text messaging to their sweetheart or sweethearts. That's the problem. Yeah. And all those, but uh, like that, it's like any other sort of system. It's all these social, cultural dependencies that come together. Um, let's sp- talk about the printing press. You have a great chapter on the printing press. I, I, I want to briefly think about the printing press 
as a system and as a court technology, which is a fantastic way. I mean, we're, we're going back and forth here, but just talking about printing and postcards makes me think about that. Yeah. Well, uh, it was a surprise to me to see that Gutenberg, sometimes Gutenberg, uh, Johann Gutenberg, uh, the inventor of the Western system, not the Chinese system of movable type. The Koreans had a system of movable type way before that. So it's the Western European system of um, uh, movable type printing. He retired as a court. Um, he, he was a nobleman. <laughs> People sometimes think of him as a, you know, industrial capitalist or something. And the great capital requirements for printing presses made it the case that they needed lots and lots of money. Does that make them early versions of industrial capitalists? No. Gutenberg in that generation, and then the man Christopher Planton, who basically industrialized printing, set up 22 presses and published tens of thousands of volumes. Uh, you look at what he was publishing, and it's directly connected, funny enough, uh, not to the Dutch state where he was, but to the Spanish state. So it was a bunch of materials for religious materials for the Spanish state. So the court both basically not only funded or shaped Gutenberg, gave him an award at the end of his career is the right way of putting it. He became a courtier, literally with the privileges of a nobleman um, uh, before his death. But the idea that the printing press is only about like, I don't know, maybe the scientific revolution. That's very important, but that's not where the center of uh, early printing was. It's surprisingly well embedded and connected to, again, the court system, not in Italy so much, but uh, in other places in the farther uh, northern parts of Europe, including mm -hmm. Spain, strangely enough. Well, let's skip, uh, let's skip forward to, I, I, I think, what everyone is going to expect us to talk about, which is the Industrial Revolution. Uh, and I think the the industrial revolution amongst historians of technology has gone through the same development uh, that enlightenment has gone through amongst intellectual and cultural historians. And I think, as in both cases, that often has not leaked out to a lay audience. So a lay audience still thinks of a unitary industrial revolution in the way that they think of the unitary enlightenment. Um and I, when I say lay audience, I mean our listeners, you know, lawyers and doctors and intelligent people who just, this doesn't, for some reason, uh, historians often speak amongst themselves in this way. So let's, uh, if we can uh, briefly, let, let's try to divide the neat and tidy package of the Industrial Revolution into multiple industrial revolutions and and the varieties of industrialization, just as the varieties of technology I talked about in the introduction. Well, just to, to put a point on it, the Industrial Revolution is much in the news these days because of global warming. And so there's two places where global warming and the switch to the Anthropocene, if that's a concept people are familiar with, the idea that humans are wreaking uh, climate sky, planetary scale changes on the environment. Well, there's two beginnings, and one is the Industrial Revolution at 1750. So all of a sudden, the idea about the energy intensivity and the puffing smokestacks and the horrible smog in in uh, London uh, looks a lot more um, pressing. So the point is, I think that we had a very simple idea. It was connected to development theory. It was connected to essentially uh, parts of the Cold War in the 1960s. It was Walt Rostow and uh, David Landis and Eric Hobsbawm different politically, but they shared the same view that the Industrial Revolution started in one place, Britain, and then spread from there across the world and then led to, well, Hobbes said, well, led to imperialism and 
Uh, Rothschild would say, well, it led to this great takeoff and the triumph of, uh, you know, Western capitalism. And he was trying to in engineer uh, takeoffs in the third world. So that was, you know, that was Rothschild's goal. And so the idea that it was a single thing, well, what was the single thing? It was driven by cotton, it was driven by coal, it was driven by iron, and they came together in the factory synthesis, and that was a juggernaut that changed the world. So one lever, you pull it, and you get an industrial revolution. Well, many problems with that, but what I, I If I may, we've reverted to that now. As you, you point out in the new edition, I think, and uh, we've reverted to this. Now we're back to cotton as a lever. We're back to slavery as the lever for yeah. industrialization. It's yeah. really weird. The old is new again. Very mm. weird. <laughs> so, so what happened after the <laughs> sort of the, the '60s simple picture is that there was a kind of army of of um, social historians and uh, labor historians and historians of that looked very carefully. So what, what was actually going on in industrial Britain? Well, the first thing that they found out is that cotton was tiny, 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 and the wool was massive. The wool industry was much, much larger, and it wasn't fading away. It was actually growing. It was technologically progressive. There wasn't a Manchester cottonopolis to understand the wool industry, so it was hard to see. But they basically said, look, you know, cotton is just something very small. Then somebody said, well, look, you know, the industrial workforce, only 10% ever worked in factories. 90% of people worked in small shops or they worked in, you know, places in their homes and on and on and on. That's the their industrial home. workforce. So factories can't be the golden key that sort of unlocked everything. So what happened is a view of massive complexity. And that is just hard to convey to any non-specialist public, because then you have a kind of industrialization that occurs in cotton and in wool and in linen and in silk and on and on and on. And we're not even talking about coal. We haven't mentioned iron. Then there's steel on and on. So so it's just too complicated. And there's there's like leather. I just was reading about leather. the buffalo uh, dot kill off in the 1870s. <laughs> Yep. And and leather leather is leather is the they're using it for the belts to power all the factories are yep. made from buffalo hide. Yep, you know that's <laughs> that's an, that's I mean, there's a tremendous path dependence there upon leather to run factories. So so the point is that the so-called traditional industries building is another one. It's huge. It industrializes leather is uh, is very important. Uh, uh, and and on and on. So, but the point is that it's just too complicated. So when I turned to doing the industrial revolution chapter, I was going to do the leading sector sector. So cotton, iron, coal, mm. factory synthesis. I thought that's perfectly fine. And then I started reading in this literature, and it just made my head hurt. I thought, well, no, I can't do leading sectors because that doesn't capture the industrial revolution as scholars have tried to understand it and to correct our overly simple view. So what I ended up doing was it was just sort of think, well, what 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 do we know? And I thought, well, if we looked at industrializing cities as a unit of analysis, then that's at least comprehensible. And if there was coal or iron or cotton, then that'd be fine. I'd done a book on the steel industry. So Sheffield, which had a very interesting model, Sheffield was uh, Britain's leading steel city for Decades and decades and decades. They developed uh, all kinds of specialty steels. Uh, they were involved with the uh, uh, highest quality steels. And that was a very active model, but it was not a factory-driven model. There's no factories in Sheffield, more or less, maybe one. 
uh, until the 1860s or thereabouts. Then you have big steel factories. So Sheffield passes through, becomes a technological leader, but there's no factories. Americans came to Sheffield and they said, well, where's the factory? Because everybody is working from small shops and they organize in a network basis, not a factory basis, not a hierarchy, but in a network where you pass work back and forth among a network of people that can do the different things for making a knife. So you have to have bar iron and cutting and hafting and whatever. So then I thought, well, I have to do uh, cotton because that's a kind of paradigm. Uh, everybody thinks that cotton is the center of the British Industrial Revolution. That's easy. You look at uh, Manchester. And then I was, I think I was kind of intrigued by London. And London in sort of the earlier historiography was, oh, you don't need to do with London. You know, the Industrial Revolution occurs somewhere else. But there was an Industrial Revolution in London. And in fact, it's a very important place because that's where the machine tool building industry came from close to Manchester, but it's all a London product. There's huge numbers of industrial workers in London. London's growth between, you know, 1800 and 1850 is that grows. And in 1850, its growth alone over those 50 years is larger than like the top dozen or so textile factory towns that were supposed to be the center. So the idea that you could maybe look at geographies of industry and tell a different kind of story, not wedded to so-called leading sectors was attractive. Yeah, the London thing, I, I was having a study about um, 18th century rifles and uh, a couple of years ago. And uh, by, uh, the, by 1770, gun shops in London already had divided the work on a gun into like 18 to 20 different tasks with different people working on every task. And some of them just, some English people, you can see these conversations, they kind of refuse to believe that any one American riflesmith <laughs> could build a rifle all by themselves from, you know, from doing, forging the steel all the way to making the, the, the decorations. It's yeah. just, it's so old fashioned compared to the way that they've already in, I mean, the way that they've industrialized, let's just, right, let's yeah. just use that. They've, they've, they've split up their manufacturing tasks. They've, so they've what, what is then labor and specialization and a high degree of mechanization. So I actually end up using the beer industry, the porter industry as a kind of paradigm case. And it's not part of the traditional yeah. leading sectors, but it has all the hallmarks of industry, massive scale, huge capitalization, massive, massive use of mechanization to move beer around to grind and then a huge use of steam engines as well. Capitalization for these beer brewers is about 10 times, literally 10 times the order of magnitude larger than the largest industrial enterprises that are in the other industrializing you know, sort of cities. So there's a very important story to understand. Beer is kind of interesting to talk about, but it, it's, a, it's a hallmark. It's a prototype of industrialization exactly in the same way. It's divided labor. It's hugely capital intensive. It's not particularly labor intensive. And the porter industry also um, sort of picks up one of the things that's characteristic of the early industrial uh, things. Dutch did high ancestors, high quality, high, uh, high prices. And in uh, London and other places, the early industrial products tended to be the cheapest ones, the ones that were susceptible of mass production. That's porter beer. This this wasn't like fine ales. This was yeah. the cheapest rot gut stuff. Porter, that's the London porters that were its uh, early it makes, uh, consumers. It, it's what people drink. It's what, And it, it, this is really strange that we're talking about postcards and beer since we just got another podcast either before or after this about the world history of beer. Uh, but 
these people are drinking beer for breakfast. They're drinking. This is also the where the workers are drinking beer for nutrition. Yep. This is the tr- traditional use of beer is for as a as a food. Yep. And that's why they're drinking this porter. It's high in calories. It's got lots of good nutrients and uh, they need it as so it, it's it's part and parcel of the rest of this industrial expansion that's going on. The yeast has uh, B vitamins and the one thing also that's very important to point out is that uh, it's relatively safe to drink even for kids because it's been essentially sterilized yep. and the water in almost all places was not sterilized and was a major vector for all kinds of communicable diseases, bacteria, and worse. Especially in what's the fastest, one of the fastest growing cities in the world, um, uh, which is about to cross a million by what, 1800, 1810. Um, They need their beer. They need their porter. Yep. Um, So what, how will we distinguish then the first industrial revolution from the second industrial revolution? Well, from a writing a chapter, uh, it, it's it's too simple. Maybe um, some of the some of the same technologies continue along. I put imperialism in the middle between the first and second industrial revolution because that seems to make sense. It's also a tie-in to the British experience with industry and the British experience in overseas empire, specifically India. But the character. Of technologies between the first and second industrial revolution change quite dramatically. The location changes. Britain, for whatever else we can say, French French had an industrial revolution. The Germans had an industrial revolution. The Swedes and the Americans, everybody has their own industrial revolution and it's different. But the British, while leading in the classic uh, first industrial revolution technologies and industries, they invent many of the pieces of science, including synthetic dyes and also electric motors and electric generators. That's Michael Faraday. And, and um, But it's the Germans and the Americans that build industries. And I think from that point in time, there's a kind of decline of British empire, something like that. You can still see kind of built into uh, some, some reflections on, on Britain today. But the science-based technologies were not built in Britain, they were built in the uh, in Germany and uh, and the United States, and then it was also a question of building a large scale and then also stabilizing the industrial system. During the 19th century, the economic system as a whole was highly unstable. Through 1929, there's in the United States, there's like nine different uh, massive. Uh, <laughs> you know, economic collapses. The famous one is in 1929, but you go back 100 years and there's nine of them. So it's like every 12 years or something like that, bang, the bottom falls out and you have three or four years of just absolute poverty. Well, you know, this Karl Marx and Friedrich Engels said that, you know, the bourgeoisie is going to produce its own grave diggers. And they were looking at the 19th century and they said, well, this is just easy. We're going to have a, another crash. And at some point in time, the working class is going to be big enough. They'll just simply take control. So one of the things that escaped their notice about the second industrial revolution is something that German scholars pointed to as kind of an organized capitalism. So instead of it being profit-driven, it became so large that the entities themselves made sufficient profits, but their market position and their scale, their, you know, their size became more important than simply, quote, making money. That's a bit of a heretical thing to think. Capitalism is always supposed to be about making money. Of course it is, but there's so many different ways of 
making money and over, is it a quarter, three months, or is it over 30 years? So organized capitalism that was a part of the big chemical combines, the big electrical combines, some of the largest corporations the world had seen. I wrote on the steel industry, it was the first, it had the first billion dollar um, entity that's U.S. Steel. And that was, U.S. Steel was absolutely not about technological innovation. It was about stability in that whole industry. And so it wasn't Edisonian, you know, kind of entrepreneurs or inventors driving those changes. It was bankers and financiers. It was kind of financial engineering. Somebody described J.P. Morgan as a financial engineer. I think that's an apt uh, description because what he was doing was creating financial structures that built organizations that channeled technology in certain, in this instance, stable ways with a lot of science and engineering uh, to support them. But then doesn't that stability of technology also lead to its withering and to its, uh, to its inability to find out? I mean, isn't stability bad for technological development? Well, <laughs> what's your time frame? <laughs> if every 12 years okay. you spend yeah. four, four years in poverty, all of a sudden an organized capitalism that might last for 30 years or 40 years or 50 years looks a whole lot better. And, you know, it wasn't that there's mm-hmm. some conspiracy, but people were brought in to the promise of the second industrial revolution through consumer goods, through the products of science and engineering. And so the rise of something like consumer capitalism, for, for instance, including automobiles, that's a, that's, that's a part of this, where people could purchase, you know, Ford people could work in the factory and then when Ford prices went down below about $300, they could purchase their own automobile. Okay, that might be a little bit too, too tidy, But the idea that this profit-driven, highly unstable system is always good for society as a whole, I think that's that's got some huge problems to it. So it's not that there aren't risks of this. You know, in the 50s and 60s, people started talking about managerial capitalism. This wasn't driven by profits at all. It was driven by the managers who were not shareholders. They were professional managers at the top of the largest corporations. They didn't really care about maximizing profits and taking risks. Bad news to take a risk and lose your job as a you know vice president or something. Much, much better to build up a large, stable system. Now, what happens in the United States, at least, with globalization, there were lots of other people around the world, like in Japan, that were building steel industries that weren't based on 1920s technologies, but built with technologies from the 50s and 60s. And we got clobbered with that. So, but if you're a steel worker and you're wanting a stable job, best time to have a steel working job is after 1935, when you can be member of a union, right? That's the, you know, uh, mm-hmm. New Deal and making unions uh, legal, mandatory, actionable to maybe, you know, 1965 or, or something like that. From a, you know, uh, how to say, from a person's point of view, that's a whole career. That could be two generations. You could have a father and son or father, rarely daughters, uh, working mm-hmm. in the same factory. That's not bad. It's not permanent. But what about technology is permanent? Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Um, let's, uh, one aspect of the, the second industrial revolution that you talk about is this idea of of a scientific science based fields. And I thought about this, about how often I've heard a variant of this interview from 
I don't know, ABC to NPR, someone talks about the Schmigs Hoson, a new particle that's just been discovered it, and then a bemused journalist says, now what will be the practical implications of this? <laughs> Eventually, is this, and you could just hear that, is this going to lead to like a new kind of microwave oven? That's or, right. <laughs> you know, or a thing, a widget. The, the Schmigs Hoson will lead to a widget or a skyhook. Yeah. Um, and this seems to me a, a, a cultural mentality that we picked up sometime thanks to Thomas Edison or somebody, even though Edison was not a scientist. Um, but we have this idea now that theoretical science will lead to, you know, something useful. And this, I, I always associate this with the atomic bomb. With maybe with the Manhattan Project, but it obviously it long predates that. Well, um, <laughs> it wasn't Edison so much. Edison used science, but I don't think he ever really understood science. I, it was in part the publicity mm-hmm. from uh, some of the uh, you know big second industrial revolution uh, companies. Look, DuPont was uh, better things for better living through chemistry, and you know that was that was right. their slogan, and that seemed pretty uh, attractive for a long time. You know, the science community has also, uh, from the Manhattan Project forward, been very active at connecting the public's mind with science and then technology or some uh, some other uh, sort of useful thing that comes out of that. So a whole lot of chemistry and physics and engineering and computer science gets funded at a very basic level with the promise that sometime eventually, somewhere on down the line, so sometimes called the linear model of, um, of innovation, that you pour in science at the top and out comes uh, useful technologies at the bottom. That may be right. I think that it's highly problematic and we should recognize that our expectation has been shaped by two powerful uh, organizations, the science-based companies that have taken out thousands and thousands and thousands of advertisements and made movies and lodged that. And the scientific community has also very shrewdly uh, said, what good is science? Well, it might lead to insight or it might lead to this or better public policies, but it might also lead to uh, economic growth. And both of those have shaped our expectations that any piece of science must then in the end result in you know, something that uh, we, we purchase. Mm-hmm. Um, you, the um... there's instances where this is even true, though. By the way, <laughs> yeah, that's there's a, true. There's a famous yeah. piece. Patrick McKay has uh, written about iPods, and he opens his uh, he opens his piece, and it's something about you know a very s- subtle a way of making magnetic changes visible. It's basically amplifying a very very teeny tiny. Uh, magnetic effects to make hard drives, disk drives, not, I'm not talking about flash drives, but the physical spinning disk drives, much, 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 much more active. And the Nobel citation says something like that, without GMR, there would be no iPod. <laughs> so sometimes there's a connection yeah. like that. Well, and, uh, and we hear that from the scientific community because they're keen on making the connection to economic growth through scientific work. That's not a bad thing. Yeah. We- no, you made me realize. I mean, General Electric at its at its height, and it's like rest in peace, General Electric. I mean, we're think we're talking about Dupont and General Electric, both of which have just basically shut up shop in the last three years, um, which I think is is kind of a it, it, they're like tombstones of American science and technology as well as of industry. Um, 
you know, it, it just reminds me, uh, Andrew Wyeth, the artist, his brother Nathaniel, um, invented the plastic bottle for DuPont, um, which oh, also ruined. And um, but I mean, so there's there's a nice art, culture, uh, science, technology connection. But then you put me down a whole uh, rat hole as I was reading your book, thinking about Irving Langmuir, whose initial brilliant work led to better light bulbs, better incandescent light bulbs, and then went on to re- win him the Nobel Prize and 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 become one of the great. Uh, Physicist of the of the 1920s and 30s. These were the, there there was in Langmuir's work and other people's work a sort of a, a very much of a connection between theoretical slash experimental science and a light bulb, something that Absolutely. the archetype of the 20th century that's consumer right. good. That's right. No, and that's that's what makes the second industrial revolu- revolution perceptibly different from the first industrial revolution. People have been historians of science, particularly, have been looks like hoping for some kind of direct scientific input to the first industrial revolution. And maybe there's something about, you know, um, science and uh, Watt and the separate condenser and all that sort of stuff. But I think L.J. Henderson, you know, the historian of science at, uh, at Harvard had the right frame. He said, you know, science owes more to the steam engine than the steam engine owes to science. And so I think that notion, I mean, this is like thermodynamics in the 1830s and 1840s. That's not what, that's essentially once you have lots and lots of steam engines, then you can do measurements on them and then you can elaborate a science around that. And then maybe there's some some kind of scientific insights about gunpowder, but the connections are just very, very weak. In the first industrial revolution, that's what makes the second industrial revolution different. The connections to science are imminent and strong and important. I I was reading, as I read your book, I was thinking of the old joke, yeah, sure, it works in practice, but let's see if it works in theory. That's actually (laughs) thermodynamics. (laughs) (laughs) That's actually science in the first industrial revolution. We we don't know how this works in theory. We have to figure this out so we can replicate it. And it's... Let's briskly talk about uh, science, technology, and modern and modernity and modernism. Um, you have a great chapter on modernist kitchens, which also have oak oak flower drawers, which I thought was a nice touch. Here's yeah. the, the kitchen of the future, but has a a, a, a drawer in which you put your flower. Um, but the Italian futurists are a great example of the ways in which. Um, technology and culture then become intimately related. Not that they always haven't always been, but now uh, sort of like Nathaniel Wyeth, the working for DuPont and Andrew Wyeth, uh, the artist, these things are now very intimately related. Yeah. Well, there was Greta Lahotsky with the Frankfurt kitchen. She used oak, not because of whatever it is supposed to have some sort of aesthetic value, but apparently uh, she thought at least that that was a way of keeping flowers safe from bugs. There's tannic acid or something uh, in oak. So even that was very, acid, yeah. very that, rationally, yeah. uh, rationally uh, sort of thought through. Now the, the futurists are sort of the, the founding uh, salvo of modernism in modern art and in, uh, in modern architecture. It's important to understand that modernism didn't come from the futurists alone, but they're kind of irresistible to talk about. There's a whole movement across Europe, and then it comes to the United States in the 50s or so uh, with the, the style movement in the Netherlands and then ultimately the Bauhaus, and the Bauhaus moves to Chicago and uh, to Harvard, and we get modern architecture out of this. But the futurists um, in Italy, the northern part of Italy, Milan and, uh, and Turin, and the industrializing part of uh, of the north of Italy uh, basically ended up taking 
kind of view that put technology as a element of beauty. Let me just read you a, a little quote. This comes from a, a, a manifesto they did in 1910, I think. So it's, it's this is what artists were supposed to be uh, artists were supposed to be doing. So they wrote, our forebears drew their artistic inspiration from a religious atmosphere which fed their souls. But in the new age, the same way we, in the modern era, must breathe in the tangible miracles of contemporary life. And so that was like railroads and steam engines and dreadnoughts and on and on and on and on. The frenetic life and the, of the our city. And the view of the... The view from the airplane and the way it changes the idea of painting, you know, or you, it, you see that you see different landscapes differently. They're stream, they're streamlining and so on. Well, yeah. it's even the sense of motion um, as well. So yes. the futurists, they weren't interested in painting battleships. The more interesting ones, it's, it, they get connected to, uh, to abstract art. But I'd like to uh, accent the role of futurism in architecture, particularly uh, I think two or three of its most creative figures were killed in the First World War. Uh, the Futurists had a kind of lamentable uh, glorification of violence. They went off to the First World War and got killed. One of them, Flint Alia, ended up in 1914 making these sketches of a kind of hyper-industrialized Milan. And if you look at those today, you think any railroad station, any uh, you know skyscraper, for that matter, any airport in the world would love to look exactly like what was coming off his his pen in in 1914, and so those pictures gave a kind of example about what a hyper industrialized city would look like. It had multiple levels, and everything is clean and plainer, and multiple levels of rapid transportation, and on and on and on and on and on. It was literally impossible to think about. But so there's one path that we won't go down about how those images ended up shaping modernism in architecture in Europe and the United States. I'll make a more simple uh, instance. There's one fabulous piece of architecture. I think you can see it today in Turin. It was a massive, massive automobile factory built by Fiat, which was a large, large, large mm -hmm. company. It's still around today, amazingly enough. And in Turin, it's the Fiat Lingotto, L-I-N-G-O-T-T-O. You can go on YouTube and it's unbelievable because it's a clip, 55 seconds of a walkthrough. And it's a, exactly, it was a Ford scale, massive, uh, you know, moving assembly line, divide, division of labor, on and on and on and on and on. And the architect that did that apparently had studied like the Ford Highland Park plant. But at Highland Park, you poured in the raw materials on the top floor, and then you went through gravity slides and autom automobiles came out on the lower floor. With Fiat Lingiotto, it started the opposite, that actually you went up. So you poured in raw materials and then through, you know, the assembly line and these fabulous, fabulous sort of curved ramps, cars ended up coming up on the, uh, it was five stories, so on the sixth floor, the top of the building, well, it's 500 meters long, 500 meters long, it's crossed, it's a, it's a, it's a little more than a kilometer, so somewhere between half mile and three quarters of a mile, it's an automobile test track. And this, on YouTube, you can see these cars going up there and going around this test track. 
Now, they built cars there from 1925 or so until 1982, but the Italians had a very smart thing. They said, this is actually an element of culture. I mean, they built cars there, but it's an element of modernism and culture. It just takes your breath away. So all these you know, modernist sort of gurus would go there as a as a waypoint, and they turned it into like a major cultural. It was like Renzo Piano did the design. <laughs> Renzo Piano is very famous now, but this yeah. is one of the things yeah. that he ended up doing was adapting this huge, huge, huge factory. What do you do with the huge factory? Well, you turn it into an auto uh, into a auditorium, and there's workspace there, and there's you know all the kinds of sort of mixed use things, but. Apparently, it still works. You can still go there and go out one of the uh, Turin uh, tram lines. And they didn't tear it down, but they've embraced it as an authentic aspect of the local history. And people go there today and they said, well, this is just impossible. You know, in the United States, we just take these factories and knock them down or something. But in this instance, this futurist factory from 1925 to 1982 is still existing today, and people are still just wowed by it. You look, you, and you look at it, and you think, but well, any any airport would just love to look exactly like this futurist factory. <laughs> so, uh, <laughs> your your listeners can go so YouTube. It's Fiat Lenjoto. It's astonishing. Um, Fifty five seconds. We'll put it in the show notes. Um, so we mentioned Bill Wesley and his book on the Cold War. So this brings us sort of to. Manhattan Project, or really the what comes after the Manhattan Project, um, Pentagon capitalism, we could call it, uh, Pentagon industrialism. This is the military industrial complex um, of Eisenhower's farewell address. Um, and this is the idea of the way in which um, funding and preoccupate the Cold War uh, directs technology in certain, in certain ways that it might, it funnels it in certain ways it might not otherwise have gone. Um, is this it's different on scale, but is it different than, say, Renaissance court technology, getting Leonardo to spend his time developing siege warfare instruments, or different than the Imperial's technology of the Maxim gun or the railroad? Well, yes and no. <laughs> it's the only possible, uh, the only possible <laughs> answer. So no, such, a good, is, such a good Seymour professorial Mellon, answer. Seymour Mellon is a great critic of the, uh, mil of the military. He was an industrial engineer from Columbia. And we've already mentioned that capitalism has gone through several major transformations, industrial capitalism, organized capitalism, managerial capitalism, and they're all substantively different. The type of society that you get is different, and the type of regulation governments might choose to exert is also quite different during those different phases. So what he saw in the 70s, 60s and 70s was the rise of what he termed it Pentagon capitalism. So instead of having profit maximizing entities, you had contract maximizing entities. And so I mean, I was at MIT at the time, and this just made perfect sense to me. You know, like one of the biggest companies in Boston <laughs> was Raytheon. It was founded by uh, Vannevar Bush. Uh, they started out doing one thing or another. Then basically after, during the Second World War and, and Following that, they became one of the largest defense contractors. That's not a company that's trying to maximize profits. It doesn't make any sense to maximize profits if you're Raytheon well, or any of the other really large uh, in, you know, military con contractors. We could say the same thing about MIT. MIT is like a, a contract maximizing. <laughs> MIT is a sort of a contract maximizing entity as well. Yeah, um, I think it was in, in it was the ways. only university yeah. that made the Pentagon's whatever it was top twenty 
uh, list of military contractors. So it's you know like Boeing, <laughs> North American, yeah. Rockwell, MIT, <laughs> Raytheon, uh, sort of whatever else. <laughs> that 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 sort of piqued my interest. And there were people there, Merritt Rose Smith and David Noble. Uh, that were also interested in the in more generally the history of technology, but also then the military's influence on technology in in the nineteenth and David Nolan in the the twentieth century. So that really kind of piqued my interest not only in you know kind of a critique of the military industrial complex that was uh, well established, but thinking about the military services and their profound impact on the economy and on technology over a, a very a very long period of time. So again, there's lots of things that could be said about that. I think the Cold War is over. The Soviet Union is in the news, except it's, we call it Russia now, but it sure is behaving a whole lot like the Soviet Union this week. And so it looks like we might get some kind of, some kind of version of the second Cold War, but nothing is gonna have quite the same hair trigger uh, danger that we had with the first Cold War period, say 1947 through 1989, 1990. So, and that was really a period where in the United States, at least, military services funded a big swath of technology, including, by the way, you know, all the atomic stuff, big swath of electronics, and the early part of the internet is all directly connected to military funding. So you have, uh, let's uh, start to, to wind this up because we've been going on for a while. Um, we've got this, um, I'm, I'm very interested in talking about the sort of last chapter of your of the third edition. Um, and since you mentioned the internet, I think it goes nicely there. Just talk about the dominance of the digital. Um, what do you mean by dominance of the digital? And um, is it? <laughs> Well, it, I, I've also put the dominance of the digital ending, 1990 to 2016. I'll explain to, uh, 2016. I think it's sort of fair to say that during the second industrial revolution, the driving force was not Renaissance courts, but the driving force for technology was a set of, I won't say more or less, private sector companies that funded and shaped technology to fit their, uh, their designs, their interests, their goals. I think during the period that I understand as the dominance of the digital, look, the internet had already uh, been invented. Um, and But what becomes interesting to me is that the notion of technological progress gets reified and shrunk so that people cannot think beyond the chip. So the first part of the chapter really deals with Moore's <laughs> law, the prophecy that Gordon Moore, important figure in Intel, the big semiconductor uh, manufacturer. He was kind of prophesied this in 1965. Nobody paid him much attention. He relaunched it in 1975. Then all of a sudden, it seemed like it gained traction. And it gained traction in part because the semiconductor industry changed its culture. It also got connected to the U.S. government. The U.S. government went through a series of major policy shifts to very uncharacteristically uh, erect big trade barriers. I mean, we're supposed to be an open capitalist globalizing economy and the US government in fighting Japan ended up doing exactly the opposite. Then um, there was a series of roadmaps that meant we look like planning, except we can't have planning. Uh, the roadmaps were originally out of the defense department, then they became tools that the US national semiconductor industry uh, 
uh, elaborated, and then became international semiconductor planning tools. So at one point in time, there's 937 people that get together from every single semiconductor manufacturing country in the world and basically plan the next 15 years of device sizes, and that means the wavelengths, and that means the kinds of chemistry that you need to get the different resists and different chemical things to work out under certain wavelengths of light. Now, that ended in 2016. And so we still have big semiconductor companies. We still have an interest on the part of some to be thinking proactively uh, about the semiconductor industry, but we no longer have a worldwide, essentially, international technology roadmap for semiconductors that is a mechanism to guide the innovation across all these different countries. That ended in 2016. So second part of the chapter picks up the internet. And what I try to do is give some purchase to the present day uh, circumstance of the internet. Look, I don't try to figure out what's going on with uh, with Facebook. Last week, Facebook looked really great. This week, Facebook, just last, it was yesterday, they lost 25% of their whole uh, stock market value. That's not supposed to happen. So I don't want to predict Facebook, but I do want to give readers insight into the big battle that's been going on between a democratic internet and a kind of more authoritarian internet. And the way that the structure of the internet facilitates both democratic possibilities as well as authoritarian possibilities. And I think that's a really crucial thing that you can describe and understand that gives people purchase and insight into things that they might be reading in the newspapers or seeing on TV or radio or uh, other, uh, other sources of news today. I think it's a very important thing. 2016 also, by the way, is when we ended up sort of ending globalization. You know, 2016, we got a, a, a authoritarian, anti-globalist, nationalist uh, involved in the U.S. government. Same thing happened in Britain. And there were also changes that led to a kind of a massive weakening of the forces of globalization and a strengthening of the forces of nationalization, and especially nationalist governments that have authoritarian bent now use the internet to further their own political goals. That's shocking. And we need uh, need some insight into that. I think the internet's a like free collection of individuals. You can find anything that you want to. Can't do it in China, can't do it in Russia, can't do it in Iran, can't do it in about uh, maybe a dozen other countries because the internet is controlled by the government. It's not supposed to be that way, but it is today. And we need insight into that. So speaking about what's in the news, for the last 10 to 15 years, there's been a, a, a endless discussion of atoms versus bits amongst uh, techno enthusiasts, Silicon Valley types, venture capitalists. Uh, and this has been the, the, all, the whole thing is that we're very good at making apps, but we need to make like stuff. And then in, uh, I'd say the last couple of years, and, and very much even in the last year to six, or six months, we see an incredible interest in actual the atoms again and in, in building in building things you see this sort of in the private space race which is i think real and important um you can see the way that the cost of getting a kilogram in orbit has is is dropping in ways that no one would have thought possible 20 years ago um and you also see this in this really extraordinary series of investments and also i think i'm correct in saying developments in nuclear fusion which, of course, the old joke is, is that fusion is always 50 years away. 
Um, what do you think about this? Is this so? I think your your idea of 2016 might be actually very interesting for a variety of reasons. This might actually are we at some sort of inflection point in this sort of endless this almost hackneyed atoms versus bits argument? It's hard to have insight about the future. It's really really hard, especially so about the future. I, yeah. What what yeah. I what I can say is that it's important to have a robust and complex understanding about what technologies have done in the past and the essential open-endedness at certain moments. During the middle of the science and systems era, it was hard to do anything else because Irving Langmuir knew exactly where he needed to work. And for years and years and years, any physicist, any engineer needed to work for Bell Laboratories. And that was, that was all they needed, uh, they needed to work for. And so thinking about the future is really hard, but having an idea that eras structure our society, they structure what we can think, and they structure our technology, mm -hmm. which is a vision of the future that becomes real, that is the important insight. So atoms versus bits, I don't know. But if somebody says, well, bits are is the singular solution, or atoms are the singular solution, I would just say that's actually not the right question key question is to have a firm understanding that technologies go in different directions, not one endpoint, and that we have consequential choices. We don't always have the ability to wave a magic wand and create a new era, but there are things that we need to do to be able to resist sometimes the laughable, ridiculous, simplistic visions that were often fed about technology. And so not answering your question, but just saying that that's the right question, but having the correct framework for understanding the consequential choices and essentially the open-ended choices, I think is is vital. That's that's what my book is about. So let's f conclude by talking about the three Ds: um, displacement, disjunction, and division. Um, what are they, and what does that what does that uh, what can we learn about the history of technology since uh, Leonardo? We've been talking about displacement for uh, really this entire time because a new era comes in and it attracts people in certain areas. Imperialism may have displaced industry in Britain. It may be the case that some people believe that the massive development of a military economy and military electronics in the United States made it really hard for us to compete against the Japanese civilian technology. So that's an instance in two, two a couple ways of displacement. So things change because technologists are displaced from one era into the other. Disjunction is a little different. Disjunction tries to deal with the fact that, you know, it's kind of like the old technological lag idea of William Ogren a long time ago that our technologies seem to cause problems that our legal system can't deal with, our social and cultural system can't deal with. So we might have an expectation about the future, but oftentimes there's a disjunction between what we want and what technology seems to be offering us. And finally, division is something I think that, you know, we used to talk about the digital divide, and that's an instance where technology is not creating a level playing field, but it's in fact creating new divisions. And for a time, it was fashionable to try to measure just how far behind some countries were 
versus other countries. Well, in the United States, the COVID-19 coronavirus pandemic has made it very clear that we have profound digital divides in our own country. We don't have to look anywhere else. You have to look only to uh, sometimes urban cities, lots of urban, uh, lots of rural areas. They simply lack the kind of digital infrastructure that modern education in this kind of online world requires. So digital divides are not somewhere else. We have them, and those are worth are paying some attention to as well. My guest today has been Tom Misa. He's the author of Leonardo to the Internet, Technology and Culture from the Renaissance to the Present, now being published, uh, I think on the day after or the day before this podcast drops, now being published in a third edition by Johns Hopkins University Press. Tom, thank you so much for a fascinating conversation. Thank you, Al. Enjoyed it. Just a brief reminder, if you're listening to Historically Thinking on the website, that's great. But for your convenience, you can also find us on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, Amazon Music, Pandora, Stitcher, iHeartRadio, GeoSavin, Podchaser, TuneIn, Deezer, and there are more. In fact, wherever there are podcasts, there you can find Historically Thinking. While great reviews are wonderful on whatever platform you want to write them, the best possible review that you can give us is to forward the podcast to a friend you think will find it interesting. You can also follow us on Twitter at hist underscore think or on Facebook.